Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, your last stop shop for the films you can't unsee. I am Mark Tavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we're joined by Aisha Harris, co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour and author of the new book, Wannabe. Today's films are two bizarre true crime stories where seemingly harmless, ordinary people found themselves in extraordinary circumstances and ended up doing the unthinkable. We'll talk about what the films and these incidents say about human nature, and if that's enough to make it worth putting yourself through them. They are Craig Zobel's shocking 2012 thriller, Compliance, and Stuart Gordon's 2007 darkly comic thriller, Stuck. Seeing is believing. All right. Our guest today is the illustrious Aisha Harris. Aisha has written and edited for both the New York Times and Slate Magazine and currently co-hosts NPR's very popular podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. And her new collection of essays is called Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, which is available right now wherever books are sold. Um, So Aisha, thank you for joining us for uh, two pieces of pop culture I assume are not among the ones that shaped you, uh, unless I'm wrong about that. <laughs> no, I would not. hope not. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. It's so great to meet you. And uh, I'm sure you're excited with the book being out now. Yes, uh, it is. It has been quite a, quite an experience. It's like two-ish years of my life writing it, and now it's finally out in the world, and I'm very excited, but it's it's been a journey, and um, I'm very excited for people to check it out, especially if they are very, very interested in pop culture of all kinds, maybe not the unwatchable kind, but uh, the kinds that have uh, shaped all of us. All right, and I know that I've seen, you know, the expert, the excerpts that you're posting on Twitter, and it seems like it covers a pretty wide range of subjects. Is there kind of something uniting them, or is this more of like freewheeling reflections? Yeah, I mean, I definitely go down a lot of different rabbit holes, but this is, you know, coming from me as a millennial black girl who grew up in the 90s and in the, the aughts. Um, so there's references to everything from, you know, like the teen comedies that we grew up on, like She's All That, 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, but then there's also a, a lot of more like contemporary um, musings, including musings around franchises and franchise fatigue and how overwhelming it is to know that like everything you've ever loved will probably be rebooted in some form. Um, Forever. So like the, the yeah. <laughs> so the sort of uniting yeah this sort of uniting uh uh theme amongst them is sort of just what it means to be someone who grew up with pop culture how i've um, negotiated my experiences with them um and also hopefully for people to get a little bit more um feel free to sort of critique the things that they love um and also feel free to love the things that they love even if other people don't like them um so it, it's it's about really just um observing my own relationship to pop culture and hopefully other people will be able to take from it um some lessons about how to not always take things so personally, but to also really enjoy the things that they love um, for what they are. Yeah, that is such a relevant just topic right now, I guess, for anybody who's looking at how pop culture affects them, whether it's movies or TV shows or music or memes or 
whatever, because it's just so constantly refracted back on us now right away. And it's it's never just as simple of this as this is just a thing that I love that I grew up with. Uh, there's a whole there's the whole ideology about uh, you know different franchises and the, the state of the movie industry and uh, I don't know people kind of forming little gangs of uh, you know <laughs> allegiance to things. Yes, it's it's a it's a very real thing. Um, I didn't expect that this would happen, but I, I do quote none other than Kenny G in one of the essays. And I, I don't know if you've seen the documentary that was made a couple years ago about him, but. It's all about exploring his polarizing personality or not his personality, but like his music being very um, polarizing um, and people love to hate on him. And he says, you know, like when someone says that they hate something that you love, you take it personally. And I think that's such an apt uh, like I don't like Kimiji's music at all, but I do think that he like very much understands who he is. And I ma- that made me respect him even more. And that's kind of what I was getting at with this whole book is just like, you know, we don't always have to love the same things or hate the same things. It's okay. Just like calm down people on the internet, especially. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's And that's such a unique thing now uh, that people didn't have to always deal with in the past <laughs> several decades, or at least it's more visible now. Um, but I saw that you did record an audiobook for this too. I did. Yes, that was quite an experience. Uh, so anyone who prefers to hear their books read aloud, it is me. Uh, it is me doing uh, voices at v- various points. I do my best attempt at a Dave Chappelle impression. Um, you can be the judge as to whether it's good or not. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was quite fun, and um, I'm excited for people to get a chance to, to listen to it as well if they don't read it uh in a physical copy man if i ever get a book published they gotta let me do the audiobook that sounds <laughs> that sounds fun i'm sure it's hard because you're like having you're probably restarting a bunch and stuff with certain paragraphs that don't that don't like oh i didn't uh i imagine you like start editing or something like while you're reading it out loud again and you're just like oh i wish it was like a little different this way or I, it would sound better if i said it this way <laughs> well i Did was you a- cheat ever did I cheat? What, what, how, how would you cheat? Where you would be like, <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm not going to say this sentence this way because I actually <laughs> think it would sound better this way. You know? And I'm going to actually say it this time. Well, if you do do that to a certain extent, then they have to like call it a, an abridged version or like note that. Uh, um, but there there were some lines that like were tweaked just a little bit, um, not even just for that, but like I do quote a lot and I quote song lyrics. And apparently I can't sing the actual melody because that could put us in like copyright territory. So I had to like weird. read them as though they weren't song lyrics. <laughs> which is very was very awkward to try and do um so yeah like those are the sort of adjustments i had to make i was like really i can't just say, this is one line i can't sing it they're like no and i'm like okay That's wacky. <laughs> yeah is the title a song lyric reference well wannabe uh okay. yes spice girls definitely make an appearance um i have an mm-hmm. entire chapter that is about the black best friend in pop culture um that sort of trope that we've seen in a lot of movies um including you know uh and tv shows so like new girl um i also reference showgirls and um and 
want to be the Spice Girls definitely played a part in that because I grew up right when they were at their peak and Scary Spice. I had a very complicated relationship to uh, as someone who had mostly white friends. And like when you're playing Spice Girls, am I automatically going to have to be scary? But what if I don't want to be scary? Mm. Uh, so, yes, uh, Spice Girls were a kind of an overlying uh, sort of um, mood board <laughs> for me. And um, I even created a playlist uh, that corresponds with a with a book which people can find on Spotify and um, the Spice Girls make a couple of appearances on there. So yeah, it's fun. <laughs> All right. Those must be fun lyrics to just read without a melody. Yes, okay. <laughs> absolutely. Really, really, really want to zig a zig. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what do you, do you mind uh, doing, we could want to talk about one of these movies in your Dave Chappelle impression. Uh, feel free <laughs> To break it out. Oh goodness! Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll see if I can slip it in there somewhere. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, lighten the mood. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. It sounds very interesting, uh, and it's it's very fun to hear your thoughts and follow you on Twitter and anywhere that your you know writing appears or where you can be heard. So we encourage everybody to check that out. Again, these movies we're about to talk about uh, are not on the the uh, fun side, uh, especially this first one that we're going to discuss, which is Compliance from 2012. And um, before I get into the specifics of this, was this something that you covered or wrote about like back when it first came out? Yeah, I actually remember seeing it, um, going to a public screening of it and uh, in 2012. And I remember being in the audience and my kind of, I probably covered my eyes a bunch of times or like audibly gasped several times. I was like, are really? Like, come on now. Like this movie is one oh. of those where you're watching it and each time, like each scene gets increasingly worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and I, I don't really remember the screening too well, except I remember there were at least a couple of people who walked out in the middle of it. Um, and there was a Q&A afterwards I cannot recall who was actually doing the Q&A um, and who was involved. But I do remember people seemed like visibly angry about the entire movie. And I was like, are you reacting to the movie itself? Or are you just reacting to <laughs> what actually apparently happened in real life? Um, and so it's like this, this movie feels like a very interesting sort of litmus test for the audience is like, how much sympathy do you have for people who do things that you think are kind of dumb or just like seem to lack any logical sense. Um, and it definitely tests my sympathy or empathy for people because I'm just like, I, I don't understand how we let it get this far. Like, I, like really? Um, but yeah, this movie, it's, it is a, watching it a second time. And for the first time since I saw it 10 years ago, like I still, I think probably I respect it even more because I think it, really does do a good job of sort of just like laying out what happens without feeling too exploitative, even though it, the movie is about exploitation. Um, and I just find it really, really fascinating. And I think Anne Dowd is just really like perfect in this role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And speaking of what actually happened, I just want to make sure our listeners note and just give a little bit of background on the actual incident, which I did a little bit of research on after watching this movie. So uh, this is based on events that happened in 2004 in Mount Washington, Kentucky at a McDonald's, um, although 
in the movie, it's changed to kind of a fictional place and they change the names of the people. But otherwise, it goes pretty much beat by beat with exactly what happened. This, it adheres very close to the actual story. And uh, the gist of it was that this was a prank call from somebody posing as a police officer and spoke to a manager at this McDonald's and basically convinced her to detain an employee who he claims had stolen money from a customer. And over the next three and a half hours through the instruction of the caller um, and trying to involve multiple other employees in it, the girl is questioned and strip searched. And eventually the manager's fiance is called in and uh, takes the phone as well, concluding in a sexual assault. And it wasn't until finally somebody, a, a maintenance man, uh, refused to participate in this that they started to become skeptical of what had happened. The uh, manager called a higher level, level manager that the caller was claiming to have also been speaking to. And of course, they didn't have any idea what was going on. And it became clear that this was not an actual police officer. And the entire thing was captured on surveillance footage, um, which was reviewed by detectives and in the ensuing trial afterwards. Uh, but they actually then found out that this had happened over 70 times in 30 different states. And you can read dozens and dozens of examples of th this being successfully pulled off by assumedly the same guy. And just for anyone curious how this ended up turning out, which the movie doesn't really follow that far, is that they found a guy in Florida through these phone call, these phone cards that he had been using. And he did go to trial, but based just on the evidence of the phone cards, he was acquitted. And uh, basically, right after that, all of the all of the phone the prank phone calls stopped mysteriously. After that, um, it seems pretty obvious he was one who did it. But the manager was convicted of unlawful imprisonment, and the fiance is the, really the only one who ended up doing jail time for sexual abuse. And. Oh. Yeah, I scanned that yeah. wiki page real hard for like the hyperlink that was going to get me to the page that tells me about the guy who did it, but there was none. And it was just like this really sad, like, oh, God. Yeah. Come on. I didn't really, I didn't really get him. And I, I had read about this previously before watching this movie, which I just did now for the first time. Um, So, you know, I did know this was something that actually happened. And I feel like the movie sets that up at the beginning because the first thing you see is like in giant letters inspired by true events, like taking up the whole screen, almost to like preemptively say, listen, you might not find any of this plausible, <laughs> but this is exactly what happened. Uh, but of course, it's still the movie's job to make it feel plausible. And I think that, you know, this is shot in a very low-key, realistic way with little-known actors uh, and doubt accepted. And uh, I was sucked in on that level for sure. And that's what makes this so harrowing. Right. And it still is very artful with the way the filmmaking goes, though. There's a, a lot, lot of interesting emphasis on B-roll, like very stylized kind of B-roll, because we are just like in the same place for a long time. so. It would be like very easy to just make this kind of like and and, and you know you, you you could kind of ignore that need to like add more of atmosphere or artifice to a movie like this where the story is just so punchy and so like just just like oh like like some really intense stuff you're reading in the in the newspaper you don't really need artifice but there is 
like an interesting like I don't know. There's like there's like uh, I love all the arty sort of like boiling of French fries and things like that throughout the day. We're like getting uh, all these bird's eye views of like various things that are happening throughout the restaurant while this is happening in the back, which everything shot in the back is very straightforward and very stark, um, which makes it very, very affecting and like uncomfortable for sure. But yeah, I, I was impressed by that. And especially in comparison to our movie that we're talking about later, Stuck, which is similarly a true story. Um, it is more like of a, you know, clinical, like they're relying on the fact that it's an intense true story that you can't believe happened or something. But uh, the, the filmmaking is not necessarily as inspired, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely plays to me like a horror film. Um and the reason why they put the base on a true story is because, like, all of these characters do kind of act like in, in they're in a horror film. Like, characters in horror films are always doing the dumbest things or the most wrong things. Like, why would you, you hear something, you're by yourself, why would you open that door? Like, and then when you're watching this, it's similar where it's like, someone keeps telling you, oh, yeah, yeah, like, you're, you are, they're saying they're a police officer, and they're claiming that your manager is also on the line, but like you never hear from the manager directly and you are just assuming all these things. How, how, like how gullible are you? Um, and what I really liked about this film is that yes, it's very hard to believe if you were just given a rundown of what was happening and someone explained this plot to you um, without seeing it, you'd be like, oh, come on now. Like, who would actually do this? But what this film really proves is what the what police officers and what law enforcement, the hold that they have on American psyche in terms of their control and power and how just saying that you are a you know a law officer, an officer of the law, can make people just all in that, like the movie's called compliance. Like you will comply because you are, you fear authority. You fear, um, not being, um, you fear not being able to, um, do your civic duty or whatever. And that's how the and dad character keeps being roped in. Um, the person on the line keeps saying like, can we count on you? Like we, like we need you to really help us. Like this is such a huge help. You are doing your duty and you'll notice that each character will sort of like feed the other person on the line information without even realizing they're feeding information. Uh, they'll say, you know, we, we have one of your employees, they're blonde and she'll see the end down character will be just be like, Oh, Rebecca or Becky. And there's like, Oh yeah, yeah. Her name's Rebecca. Like, it's just like, so those little small details all add up and really help explain um, why everything got to the point that it did. Um, and even as we in the audience are probably like, I would never do that. You know, you, I can also, to some extent, see how in that given situation, someone could have their blinders on to a certain extent. I don't know if you guys felt that way, too. But, like, it was very convincing to me, at least, by the end of it, why all of those little pieces added up together to what they were. It doesn't make it any less depressing, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it made sense. Yeah, it's definitely being very empathetic and, like, trying its best to, like, think through the motivations and what they might have been and not always like where it might be easy to like 
Maybe, and maybe there was more of like sinister intent for certain characters. We don't know. Like in like or the the real life people that were involved. Like there might have been something there, but it seems to be very generous in the humanity of these characters and that they are just as swindled and caught up in it all as as Becky is, you know. Yeah, I found it to be very convincing. And I think it starts even at the very beginning when we see the manager character who's kind of being belittled by this delivery driver. And at first she stands up for herself a little and, but she ends up apologizing and thanking him to come out and, um, you know, kind of submitting to him. And there is a little bit of a hint, you know, of even resentment towards Becky, the, um, the employee when she kind of is, gives her this look when she overhears her kind of making fun of her for using the word sexting. And oh, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I was so glad you brought up that prologue. It sort of feels like a little prologue because it feels like when, once you're done with the movie, I remembered that scene, like where she's arguing with the guy about how, like, yeah, they don't have bacon, and that's almost like a joke or something. But it is like, I think it is really important in that it it is to put you in that world of like subservient food service, sort of like. Like, which is sort of like a, a a mindset that you are kind of like beaten into sometimes in these like service oriented jobs, which are like, I, you're, you're just constantly having, even though it's not right and you shouldn't have to, you're constantly having to like nod and apologize and be nice. And then she's displaying it even outside of like, she's not on the clock necessarily in, in a real way. Um, and that is, yeah, like caught up in that kind of, like really intense mindscape. And I think a lot of the credit goes to the cast, which I think everybody is really good here, but especially Ann Dowd. Um, like you were saying, Aisha, she, this, uh, she, you know, she's someone who's been in a lot of small roles in tons of movies, um, for like Philadelphia, uh, Hereditary. She's one of Tony Collette's, like the member of her support group that she talks to. I believe she won an Emmy for The Handmaid's Tale. And uh, I guess she was on The Leftovers as well, which I haven't seen. But this is such a showcase for her. I, I know that she won the National Board of Review Award for Supporting Actress for this, even though I think it's very much a leading role. And uh, she, the way that she makes it so plausible and you can see her, you know, kind of getting flustered and browbeaten and like she is trying to do the right thing. And also... You know, the people in this movie in general are not super bright because of what is all happening here, which is definitely an aspect of it. But the way that they manage to balance that without seeming too like they're too dumb or too smart where it seems implausible they could fall for this. And another thing you were saying, Aisha, about the guy on the phone um, who's played by Pat Healy, who's I think does great as well. Um, people might recognize him as the pharmacist in magnolia that julianne moore like shrieks at mm. <laughs> you call me lady shame on him yeah shame on him. he's another guy who's like you know just been in small roles in tons of movies and he kind of works you know like a telephone psychic where he'll feed them a little bit of information and then wait for their reply and then use that so that even later on um, the manager says something like he did give like, well, he, he knew her name and that she had a brother and we're remembering, no, you told him that, but right, that yes. didn't even register to her. And he just has this mix of, you know, complimenting her, playing into her ego, but then reprimanding her and just always having this confidence of how to control the situation. Um, 
and making them call him sir is, is always a thing that kind of psychologically uh, ends up working to influence them. Yeah. I mean, this is like psychology 101, basically. Yeah. The, the whole <laughs> film is an exercise in like the power of suggestion, the power of, um, you know, making people feel as though they are special or important in order to sort of like suit, like to like giving their ego a little boost because they feel as though they are being helpful. And, and the, the, the story, the lie that this, uh, that Pat Healy's character keeps telling keeps getting bigger because it zooms out from Becky stole from a customer to, well, Becky's boyfriend or no, sorry, Becky's brother is involved possibly in some sort of crime ring or whatever. And like now it's turned into a federal thing. It's just like, what is this? Um, but I mean, not all the characters, you know, we, you mentioned the maintenance worker who's kind of the last straw, but then there are other characters too, who are like, this is wrong. Um, including Becky's friend, Kevin. Um, and, he he's like he is brought in at one point to look after Becky and told on the phone, like, you need to strip search her and he refuses. Um, but of course, again, when we're talking about power, it's not just even the people who refuse or who say, like, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. They still don't feel powerful enough to actually stand up and try and stop it. Um, and so it's such just such a really interesting exercise to see the people who are super gullible. And, you know, even though Ann Dowd's character to some extent doesn't want to do these things, you can also see how this is like making her feel as though she's empowered in a way that she didn't feel in that earlier scene when she was dealing with the, the, like the guy who's delivering the items. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see how those levels of power sort of like play out across um, all of these characters um, in this one small little fast food restaurant. Um, it just feels really realistic. And um, another reason why I think this movie is just really good, because it just seems like it's presenting the facts as they were, as like as close to how they were as, you know, we can imagine them being. Now, there's such an interesting chain. Like everybody's like looking up one up the ladder at whoever is like in charge of them. And they're just like, well, do you think so? And they, they say yes. And then so that like it all goes up to Ann Dowd, who, like you said, I think like that's apt that it is like she's living out a borderline fantasy or something of what and, and like going too far with this idea of like she's the manager and like it's there's it, it, it like kind of exposes that there's something like kind of ego driven and like her thinking that that means something more than it actually does like she is like you know like listen like everybody it, it, th these lower employees doubting this like well they're lower employees like i i had i, I have my first gut feeling and i'm going to go with that because i'm the manager and everything and everybody bows to that and yeah it is psychology 101 you can totally like apply this as metaphor for so many different like situations and i'm sure uh oh man and it is it is just sad to watch it all like kind of crumble like that and her her being exposed uh, especially Ann dowd being exposed as sort of like i don't know yeah like thinking that this is her big moment or something like that she's really like doing something here and she's just really like yeah fucking up <laughs> yeah and the actor who plays becky uh drama walker i'm not quite sure how to say her name i guess she's on gossip girl and has a very small role in once upon a time in hollywood um she 
you know, as playing basically the victim here is, you know, it's a less showy role or, or something that could be easy to overlook, but it, it takes a lot of um, modulation to make sure that you, it's plausible that she would stay in this situation. And she really does seem just over her head, like a young person who's just in no way equipped to deal with an authority figure, whether on the phone or her manager to get to the point where she is, you know, naked for most of the movie, just covered in this apron. And things just get so horrible from there, which is what makes this, we've, I don't know, the movies that we've covered lately, we kind of had it easy with the last couple few that like, that really weren't that bad. And this one was just excruciating for me at times. And it just had this feeling in the pit of my stomach. Uh, and, yeah. Why was this worse than Ro- necromantic? You know, who would have thought <laughs> so much? It kind of was. And I mean, it, it is because it is that true story aspect of it. It is just like, Oh God, like it happened. You're just still thinking about that. The whole, there's like that layer of it is, I mean, it's obvious to say, but it really is what just clinches so much of it and makes it so much more uncomfortable because you're watching almost two movies as the one in your head too, like imagining like what it actually must have been like at the same time. And it's just horrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's just like you're watching, you're basically spending 90 minutes of a movie watching various people make mistake after mistake after mistake in like just over and over and over again, which is why to me it's unwatchable or at least it's like difficult to watch because it's just, it just gets your blood boiling. <laughs> it got my blood boiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's I don't very know. very much a yell at the screen movie. Yell, yes. uh, absolutely yell at the screen, like audibly and angrily. Um, I'm curious what you thought about the ending of the movie, because I'd forgotten that this was how it ended, which is with, you know, after everything has happened, the Ann Dad character is like giving what appears to be some sort of TV interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a moment of silence, uh, I think, that she has. She takes a beat after being asked an, a, a question that her like lawyer or whoever on the side says, like, don't answer that or you can't answer that or whatever. Um, and then she shifts and she like asks the, uh, you know, the TV interviewer. So like, where are you from? And then like, it was such an interesting moment because it's clearly her sort of using a similar tactic that the Pat Healy character used earlier, this like tactic of trying to disarm someone and sort of change the narrative so that you can, uh, you know, so you can stay in control. Um, And I just loved that moment because it really puts into, it really poses that question of like, how much of her character was actually a victim of this manipulation um, versus, you know, the actual, like, Becky. Like, how how much sympathy and empathy should we have for this character, um, if any? And I'm curious what you all thought of that sort of, like, question that it seems to be asking at the end. I'm happy you shared that reading, too, because I, I did struggle with what exactly to make of that, of deciding to end on that moment. I think that's the best possible way to look at it. Um, I think that's, the epilogue in general, it I do feel like drops the ball a bit with this movie. Because um, I think the main question here with this film is, all right, what we've painstakingly dramatized this horrible thing that happened. And so what is the larger purpose of this? Why is this, you know, worth sitting through? And when you have a title like Compliance that suggests, you know, a bigger theme of something that's going on here. And 
I, I do think that the epilogue doesn't quite follow through on that because we kind of get a piecemeal thing where we get a little rush, kind of a rush through the investigation of how they end up finding the guy. We get a little scene of the girl considering a lawsuit who this happened to. Um, and then we end with this TV interview, which kind of just comes to a halt when the, she's being played the video and her lawyer says not to answer. And uh, I, I'm not really sure that the director found the greater purpose in this movie. And if that's my, that would be my main criticism of it, um, is that it seems to maybe lose the thread a bit after that happens. But maybe, I don't know, maybe that's played differently for you, Seth. I mean, I thought that it still just, it, it follows through that all in such a sweeping sort of way, like moving really fast. It almost feels like it's all happening like in one day or something by the end of it. Uh, but what what held it together for me, and, and I, I, I could agree that maybe it, I, it maybe lacks some like cohesion because it is kind of difficult. Like it is a random chaotic evil act that occurred and like, like su summing it all up into some sort of like lesson is, or something is difficult. Uh, but I could agree that it could have been more, but I do think like what, what I follow through that whole montage is just everyone's face. I don't know. It's just like, it's following how like stuff is happening. Investigations are occurring. Like, like it's all flowing and everything, but like everybody still has like almost the same face that they had on when they found out that it was not a cop on the other end of the phone, kind of almost, which is, I, I just at least found to be an interesting uh, filmmaking technique to for it to flow like that. Cause it is just like, nothing is now, there's nothing that can be done after that to rem like fix anything like all this, all this stuff that's going on and finding him and like the, yeah, the, the perpetrator guy on the phone, they, they go up to him and he has the exact same face that he always has on. And he's not really affected because yeah, this feeling that there's no way for justice to occur in this sort of situation almost, or, uh, or real catharsis to occur. It is just like an awful epiphany by the end that just goes through time. And yeah, I don't know. But I, I could agree a, a little bit. I'm I'm curious. Yeah, are you sure? What did you think? Um, I don't really know if it necessarily needed a greater purpose. I think for me, at least, the purpose seemed clear to me was to sort of lay out these rings of power and how, with all of them working together, uh, cohesively, this is how something like this happens. And I, I feel like it, it really puts that in a very clear, um, concise way for me. Uh, and so like, I guess that's kind of why I also read that final moment with Ann Dad's character is like this, this sort of, uh, kind of gauntlet throwing down of being like, okay, you may have felt empathy for this character, but maybe you shouldn't have as much as you might have at the end because she too, like kind of her, her, like her instincts, her worst instincts got the, got the best of her. Um, and yeah, I think and they that, come from bad places. Yeah. They come from right. bad places. That kind of inherent belief that she has in a, in like the powers that be, uh, it, it's all linked into like probably a bad side of her that like was there, you know? Right. Like she made a choice, just like her fiance made a choice, uh, even though he had to sort of be coerced into it. He's still there's plenty of people and there were people in that 
fast food restaurant who did not make that same choice. And so I think that um, to me, that, that's why the ending works. And I didn't necessarily need like another layer of, I, I mean, I definitely agree that it was a little bit rushed in terms of the aftermath, but I do think that final scene is kind of what seals it for me as like overall working and what it's trying to do. And, you know, one character that we never get to see more of who I want to get everybody's thoughts on is the fiance and where he factors into this, this machinery of what's going on here, because uh, he's the one person that you can't, besides the prank caller, that you can't fully excuse as just being dumb um, because of what he ends up doing. And I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, it, it, it's like, it gets to a point where he's, you know, he's making her jumping jacks and spanking her and then ends in the sexual assault, which he, you know, willingly participates in. And the actor who does this, I think, does a great job of kind of not letting, quite letting us in on what's going through his mind. He seems so shell-shocked through much of it and that some, there's gears turning in his head that we don't fully get access to, which I think works here and is fitting because I mean, what can you really say about, you know, somebody who would let that happen and that person is out there and did do it. And it's kind of like a mystery and the movie does kind of, it doesn't give us that moment where things turn into like a, a direct rate basically that it are just kind of let in on that, you know, things just inched further that way. And this guy let it happen and does end up leaving visibly upset and even calls a friend to say, I did something wrong. It's just interesting to me how little it gives us to work with there to kind of let us fill in the gaps, which- Again, yeah, his his face is all we have. He's like, just, he's just like aghast, like almost like he's watching himself do these things. And like, I mean, we are left to speculate as to whether or not like, I mean, there probably is something in it, like deeper in him that has now been sort of let out of its cage in a certain way since it is uh, now allowed for him to do something that like in, 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 in some like dark part of him, maybe he would want to do. And uh, like now that he has been given the OK, he's like it, he's like doing it, but he's like disgusted and everything like that is going on yeah it's very it's very bleak um i don't know do i want to bring the holocaust into this i don't know but it makes me it makes me it's been on it's like the easy one i feel like it's been on my head in my head too yeah well i just think about you know those officers or those people who you know claimed that they felt like they were under duress when they did horrible things um or this Mm -hmm. idea that you know, Hitler and the entire Third Reich and all of those were so just convincing that they made people do things that they wouldn't normally do. This is not something I believe. This is just, you know, the overarching, the the excuses some people have given for why people did such horrible things. Um, and I feel like there's some comparison to make on a very much smaller scale, but like it's, it is this question of like individual responsibility versus, you know, authority or like going with the flow, going with the consensus or going with um, whoever the majority, even though they're not the majority, but whoever has the power in a way. Um, And I think his character is kind of similar in a way that like he, he just needed permission to do something that he probably 
really wanted to do or like was just going to do in some way, shape or form. Um, And he had permission. And even though he could recognize afterwards that he knew it was wrong, he still did it, which to me is just so depressing. Sure. (laughs) And sad. Yeah. Um, And that's why the the Holocaust idea in this and it is just like chain of command, all that stuff. It is. Yeah. It's too simple to say that like, well, he told me to do it. It is like there is something in all of us, you know, like that we have a dark nature and it could be unlocked in the, in certain situations. Why, who are we to say that it it wouldn't, we can never know unless put in these situations. Um, Like God forbid, hope you would be strong and you wouldn't do these things and you would turn your back to it. It's that, that is what's so bleak about it. And it, and it is still empathetic in that way that it does sort of display him as sort of like, a normal person and not as this, like, he's not like this wild, like anomaly, like ticking time bomb. You can tell from the second he walks in that 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 guy is going to do something awful. It is just something buried in him that is, that is possible, unfortunately. And then of course, you know, that brings us to the guy who is actually orchestrating all of this and apparently gets off on doing it all over the place to different people. And, you know, for the first 40 minutes of the movie is completely unseen. It's just a voice on the other end of the phone, which I found to be very effective. Um, But at that point, it does start showing his face. And we spend time with the guy walking around his house, um, you know, making lunch, kind of making faces at things. Such a great reveal. Yeah, it is like so it's slow, but it is like sudden, like suddenly you're seeing him and it's very clear that this is not this is not a police officer. Like, yeah. And the uh, one particularly disturbing detail is in the background of one shot, there's this big dad mug that like, and we do eventually see like a daughter come in. Um, but I did feel that it was more effective when we didn't see him. Um, if I were to criticize something else about this movie would maybe be that spending so much time with him almost simplified things to where we have such an overhead view of what's going on that the other characters don't where up until that point, it had been very claustrophobically focused on their situation. Uh, I do wish, I think it would have been really cool to have gone all the way with that and never show his face. That's interesting. I never thought about that. I mean, because yeah, it is interesting. And I don't know, I didn't do enough research to figure out if it was necessarily true or what they're even going on that like, because yeah, my assumption it was like once I start like that this was more of like I don't know, like much more horrible things I don't even want to say are like going on on the other side of the phone. But instead, it is very much just a guy on the phone and he's like making sandwiches. It's like yeah, like like you you think he's like I don't know, just like getting off to this in like a more like sexual way, which like but he is like just making sandwiches and that's sort of like the shtick of it. And it is very strange and like creepy in a different sort of way. Uh, I don't know where they necessarily came up with that, that that was what was going on, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I, I do feel that that's a good point, uh, Mark, that it would be perhaps more effective if we didn't see him until the very end. But I also think it's interesting that if I recall correctly, the both in the movie and in real life, the guy was a telemarketer, which I think is kind of an, an apt 
profession sure. to be to to be doing this kind of horrible prank because when you're a telemarketer, if you're a good telemarketer, you're gonna have you you have tactics for how to keep people on the phone and keep them from hanging up on you. Um, and so I think that little kind of reveal, um, the scene where he's picked up at the end of the movie, he is at his job, I believe, like he's like trying to sell something. Um, so I think that little detail is interesting, but it would have been, yeah, I could see it being way even more effective if we didn't know really anything about him until the end. Um, because we think, don't really know, right? Like that's the well, whole yeah, thing we, about it. We don't yeah. know what he was doing, why, or like what exactly. Yeah, like what, what was going on on the other end of that phone call. Yeah, like that is the most horrific thing to contemplate. So I want to make sure that I give everyone a chance to give kind of final thoughts on this. Anything that didn't come up, you wanted to say, um, and ultimately say if you would unwatch this, if you could, for whatever reason, uh, you might do that for. Uh, so. Uh, well, I'll go first, and then uh, we'll go to Seth and let Aisha give us the final word on this topic. Um, I th I think that we're all pretty much agreed on how effective this is in a very queasy, uncomfortable, uh, tough-to-stomach way, and I think it deserves a lot of credit for keeping that level of realism and plausibility when, with a story that a lot of people would find frustrating for not being able to understand. And... Uh, I, I do still struggle with the where it lands in the end in a way that I'm almost not sure that it quite justifies enough the horribleness of the experience for what it does with it afterwards. So I do feel that it loses a little bit of a, a grip at that point. Um, but there's certainly the first, I don't know, it's probably like hour and 10 minutes or more of this movie as far as it's single-mindedly putting you through exactly what it would be like that it does answer the question of how would this actually play out in real life like i just can't believe it reading it and that in the end it does answer that question of well it would look like this and maybe there's uh you know not that it depends i guess in the eye of the beholder how much you take out of that uh, of of whether it's there's more than just, hey, don't trust people on the phone. And uh, this isn't how policing or um, managering is, uh, works necessarily. So, you know, don't, don't do this. Be smart. And maybe I would have liked it a little more if it, if it made some of those connections more itself instead of leaving that to us to speculate on. But again, some people might argue that's a strength of it. But you go ahead, Seth. Yeah, yeah I, I do love how it is. If it's about anything, it's about like how these stringent systems that we set up are, if, if not like vigorously maintained and watched by individuals and like questioned constantly, it can, they, they just breed like bad situations like this. It just can, like, it becomes literal machinery. Like, it's called a machine and it's for a reason that it is just like, if A happens, B will continue to happen, and we will until somebody finally like shuts it off. Um, and it is up to someone to do that, uh, which is not a role in systems often, and it's not something that's encouraged in systems, which needs to be there in order for, yeah, I don't know, in order for it to be sustainable for human beings. So it should be like it. 
I know it like happened at a fast food restaurant, but even if this, if this was fiction, it would be like the perfect place for it because it is like a great little micro version of hierarchy and how it all works and and especially just the like sort of oppressive nature of it in that you are working so hard for so for so little and you should have more and you don't have it in the and you're sort of seen as seen as lesser by your higher ups in like a bigger way and in a more like absurd way that you are like doing all this for the sake of like hamburgers and chicken and stuff like that um which is just yeah like it just only goes from there as far, far as bigger systems and bigger places are concerned but yeah and it I don't takes know. the maintenance man to put a stop to it he's the first person <laughs> i love that because you know who finally says nope not going to do this. It can't take that long before you finally like get, <laughs> I don't know how many people in 10 go in the room and like, I'd like to know that it would be less than 10 or something. But yeah, it's like, please maintenance man, go in there and immediately at least just refuse loudly to make people second guess or something. Yeah. Uh, but I would, yeah, I was, I was also again, just impressed by the filmmaking of it. Cause again, it would be very easy just to rely on a juicy story that's true and everything. Um, I, I was impressed by it, the way it feels. And it has this sort of like gold sheen to things at certain points and all that B-roll. I, I, yeah, I, I was impressed by this movie. I think it is a lot more than just like living off the steam of a juicy story for sure. Horrible story, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's bad tasting juice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have much to add. Um, do I wish I could unwatch it? No, but I don't know if I want to watch it ever again. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I just feel like my blood pressure was very, very high for that. I don't know that I needed minutes. this this week. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but I, I agree. It's. I think it's a very strong movie. And like I said earlier, I think that it it handles exploitation without actually exploiting itself. Um, and I think to me, that's what makes it work so well. All right. Well, at least we're all agree. We wish that the whole incident could just unhappen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But <laughs> unhappenable. if it had to, uh, wouldn't unwatch the movie. So the next film we're going to talk about, which is 2007 Stuck, is has a very different tone to it for a story that is also kind of horrifying to read about. And I'll just go ahead and dive right into what the real story is, which happened in 2001 in Fort Worth, Texas, where a 25-year-old nursing assistant uh, struck 37-year-old Gregory Glenn Biggs with her car. And uh, he was homeless at the time and ended up stuck halfway through her windshield. Um, She was intoxicated on, I believe, marijuana, ecstasy, alcohol at the time, and she was afraid of getting in trouble, so she drove home, and in the stroke of luck or bad luck for the man stuck in her windshield, nobody saw as she went into her garage and just went to bed and left him in there for anywhere from one to two days while he uh, slowly bled to death. And he, you know, he did survive the initial encounter, and it was pretty much agreed that he would have survived if it would have been reported. However, um, this person. Uh, decided to wait for him to die and allegedly came in and checked on him a couple different times and eventually got her cousin and uh, her cousin's friend to leave the body in a park. 
Uh, they burned part of the car to try and conceal evidence. And she became a suspect when she was heard laughing about the incident at a party like four months later. And eventually it did come to light. She is currently serving 50 years for murder. And the story itself has inspired a bunch of different adaptations. There are, apparently are episodes of CSI, Law & Order, and Fox's uh, 911. And I guess the second season of Fargo, which I haven't seen, uh, has something similar happen in it. So there's even a Bollywood remake of this movie, which Wild. honestly I thought about, like, why don't we just watch that instead? <laughs> <laughs> like but, musical uh, numbers and everything. Yeah. And, but this particular take was directed by Stuart Gordon of Reanimator and From Beyond. Um, it makes these kind of splatterfest horror comedies generally. And this was actually his final film. So I don't know. I, I guess maybe I want to start with what you guys feel about what this movie is. You know, does is it a, a dark comedy? Is it like a gross out horror movie? Um, or is there some sort of actual, you know, convincing drama going on here that's getting to the root of the story? I mean, this feels like it could have been like a Roger Corman movie from the 70s or 60s. Uh, it definitely feels to me uh, <laughs> like a movie that doesn't really take what happened seriously. Um, <laughs> at least that's how I felt. Um, first of all, I was surprised after watching the film to learn that the woman in real life was a Black woman. And you've got Mina Savari here playing that character. And she has cornrows. And then her boyfriend is played by Russell Hornsby. Um, and so, like, that felt weird to me, uh, yeah. a little awkward. Um, it's like, you know, a classic example of Hollywood whitewashing character. Um, literally, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, there's a scene where her and Rashid are having sex while this guy is in her, like, in the garage stuck in her windshield and while they're having sex and I guess while she's climaxing or maybe not like all of a sudden she's reminded like it's you see his face in the moment where she, uh, she made impact with him at the car and she's like starts screaming and it's just she's like what is this movie <laughs> um <laughs> yeah totally it's just kind of all over the place and even like the Rashid character is kind of played as a joke in a way because like he claims that he's a gangster of some sort but then like it's becomes very clear that like maybe he's not actually the gangster who he claims to be and he's kind of like he's kind of a buffoon in a way and making yeah he's just a like, wacky guy kind yeah of. just the way russell hornsby plays him is like is kind of uh just this like himbo in a way and it's very weird um <laughs> so yeah this movie uh, i i i found myself even more so than compliance like yelling out what the fuck many, many times <laughs> and putting my face in my palms and being like, what is happening? This is bizarre and batshit. And yeah, so <laughs> I, I'd say this is like a, a, it's, it's a, it's a trash movie in the sense that like, I think it knows it's trash. Like it's, it's not, you know, it's not trying to be high art by any means, <laughs> unlike no, compliance, I which I think was very much like a little bit more obviously realistic and, going for more of an indie high art feel than what this is. Well, compliance seems to feel like a responsibility to the people that were involved to do it, do it as much justice as they can and do respect to these people. 
that were involved and everything where yeah this one which i guess it uh, it is a little bit more like black and white a little bit where like these are kind of bad choices they are just like <laughs> it's not really gray area these are like bad choices that are escalating to more bad choices knowingly so um I mean, you know, there's there's a little bit you can of rope you can give them a little bit of like, of course, yeah, like you're, you've never been in that situation. Maybe you would do something crazy, but like again, ideally, <laughs> like to think you wouldn't. Um, but it, Roger Corman is pretty apt comparison that it is like read a little thing in the newspaper and like, wow, what a what a wild story. We got all these calls in about this wild story, so we better like, how are we gonna make this a a romp and uh, with laughs and uh, sex and violence and make it very exciting and everything. Cause it, yeah, it does have a lot of comedy to it, which I, I do think like where they, I don't know, I guess it is like, it's not really that funny of a situation at all. Like, I don't know. It's kind of reaching in that way. Like the beginning of the movie is interesting and in that it feels, I mean, in parentheses, both of these movies, if you can go into them without having listened to this podcast, honestly, and Tony, if you could throw this at the beginning of the podcast, like you will have like a wild time because I just didn't know anything about either of these movies watching them. And uh, as much as I don't care about spoilers, like it was like a really intense experience for both of them because I just was like, it's one kind of movie and then it's a whole other kind of movie, well, especially with this one and that like, yeah, because it's like feels like, it was just going to be about a guy finding his way being a homeless man. And like, because it was kind of, he like became friends with a guy in the park who was like teaching him the ropes and everything. And then all of a sudden gets hit by a car and the movie's like totally off on a whole other thing. It's wild. Yeah. It wouldn't be on this podcast if the, if the movie had continued in that vein, but it is interesting that the first act is, I think, you know, more together than the rest of the movie is because we are kind of introduced to two protagonists who at this point are sharing equal weight, where we have Mina Savari as this uh, nurse who works at a nursing home, I believe, or maybe it's just a hospital. And then we, you know, have Stephen Ree, who is, uh, he was from The Crying Game and V for Vendetta, uh, an Irish actor, uh, who I, I generally like a lot. And I told Mark that he was in V for Vendetta. That yes, exactly. I mean, I haven't seen <laughs> that, really but, smart. but I have seen The Crying Game. And, you know, it's a kind of empathetic look at this guy who's, you know, newly uh, homeless or unhoused, perhaps just temporarily at this point, and the kind of bureaucracy that he's trying has to face that is not helping him out. Um, you know, there's kind of a pointed a moment where once he is stuck in the windshield, like he drives by the other guy that he met in the park who is being harassed by the cops and is trying to say, Hey, look what's going on. And they don't care what he has to say, which is not subtle at all, but like, there's a man attached to a car, you know, <laughs> I and know him. Like, I recognize yeah, him. Exactly. I don't know how crazy. he recognized him, but yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> saw his shoes. That's that guy's shoes. <laughs> Um, but I do think it has, I mean, empathy for him. And I do want to give credit to Mina Savari, who I think, makes her descent into just total self-interest credible. Um, I think that the film at its best does take the care to kind of chart the path from her having this panic response while she is inhibited by drugs to she does stop at a hospital 
and then kind of chickens out and she does almost call 911 at one point and you can slowly see how it turns into a denial that just gets harder and harder to the point where she starts having resentment towards the guy stuck in her windshield and this kind of victimhood that she is claiming and as a self-defense mechanism that culminates in i think the wildest moment in the movie and my favorite <laughs> yeah. is where she is like has this tantrum and just screams at him why are you doing this to me oh while he is stuck <laughs> like bleeding paralyzed. in her windshield uh, yeah. uh, and uh, i don't know you could certainly take that kind of you know entitlement and purposeful victimhood is just ways that you can see that as a characteristic in people and in society in general uh, is, so I don't know, maybe because everything else kind of is trashy that I was surprised that there that was still in the mix. Yeah, I mean, I called it trashy and I think it definitely is. But at the same time, there there can also always be some sort of like layer of meaning or significance within any trash. Um, and I think like that as well as the fact that like compliance, this is it, it, in its own trashy way, it's a meditation again on power and how that affects how we interact with one another. And, you know, in the very first scene of the movie, um, we see Mina Savari. She's a, she works in a nursing home and we see how her boss is able to manipulate her into working on a weekend, even though she's not supposed to. And this is her second weekend doing it. But she's like, well, you know, you're up for a promotion. And I mean, if you don't want to, I mean, you don't have to come in tomorrow, but like, then you're not going to be at the top near the top of my list. And like, yeah, so like we see her character being exploited by her employer, very relatable, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and then later on, we see um, their na her neighbor, uh, a little boy hears. So I think like this is part is just so screwed up, but like he's honking the horn uh, to try to get anyone to hear him that he's stuck in the garage. And so the neighbor, a kid comes by and he tells his mom. And as soon as he told his mom, I don't know why, I just kind of had a feeling this was, was going to be the twist. And I was correct, which is that like he, they're both Latino and he goes, tells her his mom and she goes and is like, oh, we have to go help him. And then the husband comes home and he's like, well, no, we can't because we might get deported. And I was like, oh, okay, of course that's the case. But at the same time- What a like, thing to just throw in there. <laughs> it's such you know? a thing to throw in there. I don't even know if it's true or not because so much of this doesn't align with what actually happened, including the fact, spoiler, that like he lives at the end. Uh, he doesn't die. Um, but like it is uh, just the fact that that sort of power or like the fear of deportation or the fear of not, you know, you know, not being able to keep your job or whatever, all those things are what drive these choices that these characters make. And, um, you know, I think that's sort of, it's interesting to see that sort of play out in this movie that also just feels like it doesn't, you know, like you were saying, Seth, it doesn't take as much care, I think, or doesn't care as much about the real life people it's supposed to be depicting as compliance does. Um, so I guess I, I, in a way it might even make this movie more interesting, I'm not, but definitely not better than compliance. <laughs> yeah. And, and that it is like a fantasy. Like it's almost like granting him like this, this fictional version of how we wish it might've played out and he gets the glorious bastards he, all over it's, again. Yeah. He, no, exactly. it was very inglorious bastards. It was. I didn't even yeah. think, I didn't about, even that. think <laughs> about that. Yeah. I mean, we said it at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, like, 
blew up. He like she catches on fire and he gets to wreck her with the car and he stabs what's his face in the eye with a blue pen to death and stuff. <laughs> and it's like he walks away from the burning building like he's an action hero almost, you know. <laughs> the the little boy neighbor, like he looks up and the little boy's just waiting to grab his hand. I was like Yes. I was like, oh my goodness. He was still is- hanging around waiting to see how this was gonna turn out. <laughs> Uh, But I think that there is a challenge in writing this movie of having to introduce complications because once he's in that garage, you know, how do you fill the rest of the time in there? And the thing with the the boy is part of that. And And the cell phone, her leaving the cell phone in there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which was actually, I think, ended up being pretty clever just in the fact that he does get through to the police, but he can't tell them where he is because he's just like, I'm in a garage. I have no idea where I am. And no, it is really suspenseful moves going on with the, with those sequences where he is just alone in the garage and you're thinking about like, what the fuck would I do? Like, and him just trying to get water, trying to get the phone, you know, they are like, yeah. I called the movie trashy too, but I think it is, it is, keeps me really, really engaged for those sequences. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, more than anything else, what makes this qualify as unwatchable is just the gore of it. If like anyone who has a hard time with gore will have a hard time with this movie because it's, he is, he's stuck in a windshield and there are a lot of moments where I was literally cringing um, at one, he's been impaled by the windshield wiper. And then, you know, once you realize that, then of course he has to sort of like un take it out of it. It's just like, ooh, the whole time it's just like, oh, this is so painful to watch. Like, and anytime he moves, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, ah, so, so painful and so sad. And uh, he has these bones sticking out of his legs oh. too, which, yeah. and one of those sillier of moments that, has to yeah. Come in, yeah. Oh God. Is, the, again, that was like a moment where I was just like, the, and it's not just a dog. <laughs> it's like a little Pomeranian or something, like a frou-frou dog whose name yeah. I think princess. is like Princess. Yeah. So it's just like, <laughs> Every, all these little details of like this little frou-frou dog goes and starts licking his wounds in the, oh, it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really where I see Stuart Gordon, you know, like the guy who made Reanimator behind this. Like, why did this particular guy choose this particular movie? And you can see that with, yeah, the little dog licking the leg bone. And maybe the less said about the dog's owner, the better, because that is one of the lamer jokes. He's like this kind of mincing, very 2007 gay guy, like, <laughs> you know, calling after princess. <laughs> And I don't know. I think like, in general, the the morbid humor here sometimes sometimes works. It keeps things interesting and doesn't always. You know, there is some really gratuitous feeling things like in the beginning when uh, we were treated to this nice close up of this elderly man covered in feces, oh, and yeah. which is like there's no other. There's really no reason for this to be here. And this is a ridiculous moment where somebody is like clipping the toenails of someone and gets <laughs> surprised. And, and, then and, and then like bleeding and then shoots yeah. like blood out of the old lady's oh. <laughs> a toe. Like, what is this doing in the same movie? Yeah. yeah. As everything else. I mean, those moments aside, I will say that that is like both with compliance and this movie, like one of the added unwatchable aspects of it is this sort of unlikely part of it, which is the setting of, or the backdrop of so much of what, go- what is going on has to do with this job like this 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 job that is like making her like like warping you in a certain way um like she's doing all this so she doesn't get fired and she's like constantly like trying to like go back and forth like doing these insane things 
like all the while like it all having to like it all has to go off without a hitch because like I can't lose my my position I might get a, a bigger position if I don't fuck this up you know if I it's just if I can just get rid of this dude you know which is just even it's as much as it's like silly in this case it is just like it's the part that is the most like it's just so sad because it is just so meaningless in this in the in the sight of a, a a human dying in your garage you know and you your humanity being lost because you're just so up your own ass about these things that don't matter yeah we didn't even talk about the scene where she discovers that Rashid has been hooking up with someone else and then like he catches her like with this woman Jerry Springer it's full Jerry Springer. She's the woman is in bed, completely naked, and then um, Mina Savari's character lunges after her. They start fighting, and then at one point she takes, I think, a cast iron skillet and hits her in the <laughs> face. And somehow the woman's like not bleeding or anything. She's like still mobile and fine. And I was like, this. She's feels- still just embarrassed. Yeah, it was very Looney Tunes esque in a way that I. <laughs> and this was after this was after the guy is still in her windshield wiper. So this this wasn't like an earlier scene before all that happened. This was like she's so upset about this woman that she's temporarily forgotten that she's got a guy literally in her windshield, uh, just dying slowly. <laughs> just so like, jarring. What is happening? <laughs> Yeah, that and I did find that funny because of when it happens that she's going there panicking trying to get help from this guy and then just forgets about all of it in her <laughs> rage when she finds yeah. this girl with him. And I don't I like that about uh I don't know Mina Savari's performance too that she's not a, a definitely not afraid to just come off so awful in this. Yet there's not necessarily one aha moment where she turns into a villain, you know that it, it's a very gradual thing. And I, I feel like, like oh, I can see yeah. the same person <laughs> in the early scenes as in the later scenes yes. without yeah. it going too far. We thought she was like just this lovely, like good to all people nurse, you know, at the beginning, uh, you know, they were right about her in American beauty. Like she just peaked in high school and this is the <laughs> sequel to American beauty. She just totally, this is where she ended up. Oh, sad. <laughs> <laughs> Now, and, and on that note, I think that one of the mi- kind of missed opportunities with this is with the with Stephen Rees' character, whatever his name is, uh, that, you know, he really does share equal prominence with uh, Mina Savari in the early scenes. And I, I guess just the nature of him being trapped in the car for the rest of it is that he's kind of reduced to, all right, all he has to do now is to just be a guy trying to escape constantly it's suddenly all physical acting after like like the opposite in the prologue basically but i still feel like there could have been some way to have this become more of a character arc for him or something and just kind of like the 127 hours way where you know you can be you can be stuck in one situation for like an almost a whole movie and find creative ways maybe to get into his headspace or really fear the claustrophobia of it or something i don't know exactly what i would have them do but it does feel like it shifts decisively to focus on her at, at shortchanging him a little bit and you know maybe that extends to the ending which is definitely cathartic uh and you know it and you, in a movie like this that's how you want to see everything end up with him turning the tables. Um, but it also doesn't really follow through on any of the other kind of thornier things that it that it brings up, especially the way 
it just kind of stops instead of really concludes at the end with him just looking back. You know, I thought maybe it would be something where, you know, we've had this thread of them not listening to, uh, you know, the other homeless guy who saw him and the way he's been mistreated. Like maybe he's going to be blamed for this or have to, you know, prove that he, he isn't somehow the, you know, the victim here. Those are just possibilities, but I think that once they inglorious bastarded, they were already <laughs> like, We've we can't add anything else. We've already gone too far. Yeah, I, I don't know what more they could have like it, the the thing is that like at the end of the day, even though he lives, he's still unhoused. He's still like can't get a job or he's having trouble getting a job despite the fact that the movie makes it clear at the beginning that he was at one point successful career-wise um and i i i don't think that that's not what the movie cares about just the movie just cares about he got hit and then how is he going to escape and uh how does uh you know what's her name uh the munisbury character kind of turn into lady macbeth and just like <laughs> go completely uh insane for this thing that she this horrible thing she did <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Do you think this this plays differently whether or not you know it's a true story? Because what well, tells you, know, you up certain front. things? It tells oh, does you, it? I forgot yeah, that. Okay. It, it, if I remember correctly, it, it says in the opening credit, like based on true events or something along those lines. So I think it tells you up front that that's the case. But I think if I, if it wasn't, if I didn't know if it was it was real, um, I don't know. I think I would have still. It's just so wacky that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how I would if if I would judge it differently. Um, I I still think it's kind of a very clumsy, weird movie that has it has some ideas, uh, some deeper ideas that it's not like actually interested in exploring very deeply. Like it kind of like front loads the movie with ideas about um, people being exploited or people being forgotten uh by the government or by you know society but then it's just like okay now this is full-on survival picture slash you'll never believe what happened <laughs> yeah like like what what's gonna happen now that these two two characters have collided in the worst way possible <laughs> it's like yeah uh it's yeah what a weird movie i'd never heard <laughs> of this movie until you you guys suggested it and it's uh it is a is a doozy. It is an interest, definitely an interesting contrast with compliance, uh, in, in the very very different ways or just different approaches you could take to doing a true story. Where this one doesn't even like doesn't matter that it's a true story or that you know any anything about it. Um, unless you knew about the case, you wouldn't know that 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 there is a wish fulfillment ending at the end. You wouldn't know that the uh, the the ethnicity of the main character was changed and uh that that stuff only reflects poorly i guess the more you know about the real story on For it sure. whereas i think compliance very much gets it's a lot of its weight from it being a true thing which is why it's so emphatic about it at the beginning and it follows it so closely but uh, i i do get it and i'll I'll, may, I'll just make this my final thoughts and we can go back around in order like we did last time um, that, yeah, this is, this is shaky. There's especially, you know, the, the dialogue is, is a little rough sometimes, especially with, we talked about the Rashid character and it gets a little too sitcom-y for me when there's, 
you know, he's trying to convince the girl's friend who comes over <laughs> yeah, that everything's fine. And he's just sputtering, like doing the most unconvincing line. Like, uh, uh, yeah. Take some drugs. Yeah, we, uh, 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 <laughs> yeah, we, we were doing this actually. And she's oblivious to it. And I'm like, oh, come on. I, I just wish there was like the sneaky music and Twin Peaks playing during those sequences. Like, <laughs> doom, 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 doom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? What? But uh, I don't know, the main credit, other credit of the guy who wrote this movie is the horror film Deathbed and the killing the killer bed. So (laughs) maybe that's asking too much (laughs) from this. But I do think it, with that as the the starting point, it overachieves a little bit with having so much stuff in the mix that it's compelling for its own sake as a silly kind of gross out thriller that I did find funny at times. And that does have something in there for you to hold on to. So uh, it is, I know, this is a fitting final film for uh, Stuart Gordon that's not quite as silly as the the crazy splatter movies that he made before this. And, uh, but yeah, definitely come to it for something that's very different from Compliance or any other movie like that. And it's, it's kind of a ride, at least. Go ahead, Seth. Yeah, I think ride's a good way to put it, absolutely. It is kind of feels like sideshow, like gossip column ridiculousness at a certain point in an old fashioned way, like you said, Aisha, which is just like very much like there's a lot of older movies that are like that, where it's just like, well, it kind that kind of happened, but uh, we really ran with it. But it is a it's an oddity for sure. It's it's it just you have no idea where it's going. And um. I can at least say that that is an oddity that you wouldn't expect from like also the caliber of filmmaking, which is not very high, like minded, not a lot going on on screen necessarily. Um, which I mean, in, in in a way, like as much as I complain about it, like in a way almost serves it because there's just, it, it is only as good as the wildness of the story that's happening in front of you, I guess. Um, and yeah, it is uh, those cornrows, man. Uh, American Beauty Girl. I don't know. I don't know. There are a lot. There are a lot to take yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, Silly little movie. Uh, that's, that's about all I can say. Yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely feels like a MTV Films era, like circa two thousand five, two thousand six aesthetic. Uh, and there's also like Ooh. a lot of like aggressive hip hop. Uh, as the soundtrack, that's just like a lot to take in against this backdrop of. Uh, I can see teenagers like loving the shit out of this movie. Actually, yeah, like, like it, at, it, a, at like a sleepover or something, being like, "This, this crazy <laughs> fucked up." You, this crazy fucked up. Movie. Yeah, it has this like kind of eight mile kind of feel to it in a way, um, <laughs> including the location. Like, I think it's. I think it's supposed to be set in Rhode Island, but it, it could be for all you know, it could be like the Midwest or like Detroit or something. I don't know. Um, but I definitely think that this movie, it, a ride is the is, is a the right way to put it. I think that um, it's I don't know if I don't know if I would recommend it per se, but I don't think it's like I think it's interesting uh, enough to like warrant a watch if you're not too like caught up on gore or concerned about gore because it is a it is a lot of uh, s- stuff that I did not 
need or want to see. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting, and I and I agree that Mina Savari is really really good in this role, um, and um, lends it this sort of like manic electricity that uh, keeps the the story going even when it's like this. I can't believe people are doing this. Uh, I can't believe Princess is licking his his, his open bone wound. <laughs> Bad Princess. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, it's it's kind of unwatchable, and I don't know if I'll watch it again. But I can't say that I'm like angry that I watched it. So yeah, that's good. Would you watch it again before compliance? <laughs> Oh, well, I would I, say yes. <laughs> I watched it before I rewatched Compliance. Um, so I guess that order, I don't know, because like, I feel like maybe Compliance is maybe a, a good way, like a good starting point, And then this is like the chaser. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> but if you oh, had fair. to watch one again oh, now. That's what you're asking. Sorry. Oh, yes, yes. Um yeah, I think I would watch Compliance again before I'd watch this. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, either way, know. not an easy, not a fun night. <laughs> they're both about the same length. So, like, it's, you yeah. know, that they're, the, what I like about both of them is that they're kind of like, they get in, they get out. Like, it's right. short and sweet. Well, not sweet. You can't look away and, at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Short and sour. Short and sour. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, this was really fun. Uh, thank you so much, Aisha, for joining us. Uh, the book is Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. Go out and get that now. Uh, you can also listen to Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is a great time as well. And uh, do you have anything else out there you want to draw anyone's attention to or or plug it at the time? Uh, yeah, I, if this is coming out when I think it is, I do have a couple events happening. Um, you know, I'm doing, uh, an event at the Strand on June 22nd and that should be fun in New York city. So come out and say hi. We'll, I'll be talking about wannabe and pop culture with Jordan Searles, who is just a really great film critic and a really great like internet presence. Um, and I'm on Twitter, but also I'm like slowly migrating to blue sky. Uh, <laughs> we all might have to. Yeah. So if you want to find me there, I'm at Aisha Harris. Um, yeah. Blue sky is interesting. I'm, but for now I'm still on Twitter cause I do have a book to promote and that's where <laughs> everyone is. So check me out. Well, yeah. Drive, drive safely. And, uh, <laughs> oh man, don't text and drive. I'll tell you what, I have thought about it every time I get in my car yes. now. I mean, like, if the- like, I'm putting that phone down and it's not even a flip phone with T9 or whatever. You know? <laughs> if you, if there's ever a, a good PSA for not texting and driving, it's this, it's stuck. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I just heard Werner Herzog talking like during that whole <laughs> sequence. And if the police call you, call them back first. Call 911 back. Just just hang up on them. You don't have to talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> or really, maybe just stay out of McDonald's. Stick to the drive-thru. Yes. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpitti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. 
You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark.Tavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Started out with nothing and your man.